Our emotions are designed, they're designed to inform us, not to direct us. There is no number you're ever going to get to that is going to heal whatever is going on inside of you. I think defining what it means to be a man is not possible. And, and when I say I don't think it's possible, I think I mean on a mass scale of agreement throughout societies. Oftentimes, anger is simply sadness masked. Because I feel like you never really stop growing. And if you have stopped growing, like you're already dead in the water. You know, stagnation is synonymous to death. You are now embarking on the imperfect experience. Hey, imperfect listeners, on this episode, I have Regina G. Hansen. Regina is a writer who incorporates a conversational tone that affords the reader a more intimate experience. Her writing genres include historical documentaries, cultural studies, children's books, memoirs, blogs, and general content. Regina is also a dynamic public speaker and activist, promoting equality for all and cultural appreciation into everything that she does. Having founded Personal Empowerment Publishing, it is Regina's hope that each work published will empower her readers to grow and evolve into their best selves. On this episode, we talk a lot about feminism and how that kind of breaks down and can really be seen to support the masculine manhood journey um, and isn't going to get in the way. So I really hope you enjoy and let's get into it now. I am excited here to be here today, uh, Imperfect Listeners, with Regina G. Hansen. Uh, the G is important. Uh, author, feminist, and uh, it's really important that I highlight the word feminist to me. I think it's really important because from what I hear from a lot of other men that are having these conversations is they see feminists as irrational, not helping in the conversation about healthy masculinity. They say ex- exacerbates some of the toxic things and, and you know, the, the difficult ways that men see themselves, which I think is, is totally in a, incorrect. Um, if we're talking about true feminism, which is why I wanted to highlight that you are a self-declared feminist. Um, and kind of before we get into that, I'll ask you the same question I always ask all my guests is, who is one person, dead or alive, that you'd like to have over for dinner, and what would you cook for them? I'd like to answer two, if I may. Perfect. Go okay. ahead. My first is a woman, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, and most of your listeners may not know who she was. She was um, a black woman born two years after slavery ended in South Carolina. She was, I believe, the 16th of 17 children. So the majority of her brothers and sisters had been born into slavery. She ended up being an educator. She started um, an all-girls school in Florida with $1.50. She ended up getting donors such as Rockefeller, Gold, Forbes to donate to this institution. The institution is alive and well today and known as Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona, Florida. But she went on to... um, be an advisor to FDR, to run the Black Cabinet during the Depression. Um, She was just an incredible woman and very much ahead of her time in a lot of ways. So I would make her my mother's meatloaf, mashed potatoes and cornbread. Mm -hmm. And I would ask her all the questions I have about racism and why aren't we further along? And what can you tell me from your insight that I can do to help move the train along? Um, Mm. That is a dinner that I've wanted to have for decades. Perfect. And who's the second one? The second one is a president that I have adored for, gosh, 40 years, Thomas Jefferson. Mm. Thomas would get my mother's crock pot, um, roast beef, your, your pork roast, um, with all the carrots and mashed potatoes and everything in the crock pot with her biscuits. Now my mother made the best biscuits that you've ever put mm. in your mouth. They were like cake. Okay. So first I would charm him with this meal and then I would dissect his mind further. I've, I've got almost 40 books on Jefferson. I've wow. read a lot about him. I've studied his writings And I've sort of followed his ins and outs and ups and downs with the racism and slavery issue. And I try to remember anytime I'm studying that we have to take into context the era and societal norms during that time and what was happening culturally. 
before we dissect these things. Mm -hmm. So I don't have as much disdain for him as some people do because I really try to put all of that in perspective. I think there was more to him than met the eye. Um, when you look at the original Declaration of Independence that's housed in, I believe it's in D.C. now, you see a line marked out where senators had gone behind him and made changes in the Declaration of Independence and where he had written, we all are created equal, they'd crossed it out. And that's where the slavery clause came in. So I'd really like to better understand what was going on in our presidents, senators, congressmen's minds during that era surrounding slavery. Mm. Those are my two. Yeah. I, I have actually had um, an interesting conversation. I forget what episode it was, but I think it was 39, John Curry, or maybe 37. I'm forgetting, but it's it's about traditional masculinity. He's a gentleman that was, um, he's in the army, but I think he talked about, we talked a little bit about the declaration and Thomas Jefferson in that episode because of, we were talking a little bit about slavery and racism and all men are created equal and the kind of principles that, uh, America was founded on. So I thought that was really interesting and, and, and putting it into the context of where they were. Um, so I think that also leads us to a very interesting part that we're going to, we're going to get into it later because you and I, in our, in our pre-conversation talked about how, you know, women in the workplace will evolve and change. And, and we're going to talk a lot about how the, the history of the woman in the home has changed um, to where we are today. But before we get into that, I did want to go back and revisit what I was, I introduced you as a feminist. Um, why do you call yourself a feminist? Why do you think it's important to this conversation that we're going to have today? Luke, feminism isn't a dirty word to me. Mm -hmm. It is to a lot of people, but I consider it a form of freedom. I don't see anything negative in it. It's not like the word racist. Mm -hmm. And I do understand the negative connotation it has in a lot of people's minds and how men kind of have an angst towards women who identify as feminist. And a lot of women who are feminist don't publicly declare themselves such because they, they don't want to offend. But I think we need to remember that a lot of times when you're having an intense conversation about feminism, you have a lot of women that are in feminist classes. That's why things come up sometimes. And, and they're ready to go to war because they're just realizing in their minds what's been going on, the subjugation that's taken place. And so they're ready to go into battle. Mm -hmm. If we can come at this in our loving relationships where, and I don't mean just romantic, I mean brother, sister, cousin, friends um, that you hang out with where you can open up each other's minds and perspectives. Those are the best friendships, right? Mm -hmm. You can really honestly discuss what's happening in the ways in which we are all guilty. And what I mean by that, and this can apply to feminism, it can apply to racism. We are often unaware we fall into habits according to social structures and the way in the environments that we've been raised in, the way we've always lived. And so when we try to break those molds and learn and evolve and grow, it's challenging, it's tough, it's uncomfortable initially. But we get to decide, do we want to be better? Do we want to be lazy and stay the same? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do we want to create a better, more equal society overall? I mean, it's really up to us. So I, I feel definitely for your male listeners who sort of fear the feminist and think that feminists are men haters. Um, we're not. If you met me, feminist is not the first word that would come to your mind about me. Um, I'm very fun loving and um, quick with a line and have a potty mouth and, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I can go shoot pool with you or go listen to a band. I don't always have my head stuck in a book. Yeah. Which, I mean, you've read a lot of books with, based off our first conversation and the view that I'm seeing on Zoom right now. Uh, <laughs> Well-educated, intellectual woman here. Um, and and I love that. And 
man, you said you have 40 books just on uh, Thomas Jefferson alone. So that's quite quite the, the hefty workload there. <laughs> yeah, the last time I counted it, there were 38. And I think I have one in my nightstand on Jefferson too. <laughs> Typ- okay, typically like how often, how how many, do you read every day? Do you set aside time to read every day? I don't. That's a great question okay. because I'm an author and I'm working on my second book. So I am researching a lot. And whereas initially I was working with some feminist theory, the book that I'm writing now is called Sexual Intellectual Female. The bulk of the research for that has been in popular culture and social media because I'm exploring Mm. what's going on culturally, particularly with our youth, particularly with millennials and the Z generation. And that isn't in books. It hasn't really been written yet. Mm Mm-hmm. What are, what are some of the biggest t- takeaways you've had so far? I got to tell you, I'm just impressed. I keep thinking about the people who dog millennials. I'm so mm. tired of hearing how lazy and unethical and blah, blah, blah millennials and Zs are. It just isn't true. We have a generation who finally has been educated enough to be environmentally conscious, to realize what's happening. They haven't been living so long that they can't see another way. Some of us Mm. have been doing the same thing for so long. We're not willing to step out of our comfort zone and do what needs to take place. One thing I'll ask you, have you watched the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma? I haven't yet. No. Oh, I highly recommend it. I'm going to be referencing a couple of places in it. But it talks about how our millennials and particularly our Z generation has just been raised with that phone in their hand from the time they were 12 in middle Mm -hmm. school. And something I'm tapping into in my research and writing is a lot of that generation doesn't know how to date. They don't know, they're not well-versed in having true social interactions because all of their social interactions are on a phone, on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, As someone who has been around for a while, Online dating is really scary to me. Mm. You have hookup sites. You don't have anyone who's really genuine and getting to know you. And it's very scary for a woman just to go out and meet a guy and be safe and be allowed the time and space to develop an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that regard, I'm concerned for my millennials and my Z generation. But on the other hand, I'm also seeing much more autonomy with our women and a less likelihood of falling into that fifters gender stereotype. And by Mm -hmm. fifties, I mean, I'm going to be a wife and mother and never leave the house except to go buy my family groceries or take kids to soccer. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about that because that's what I'm really interested in, in talking about with you is, is how the woman and the ideal woman has kind of shifted to become the modern woman that we're talking about today, which kind of segues perfectly from what you were talking about in the sense of dogging on millennials and Gen Z, um, but also how just the, you know, what I see often is when it comes to women in leadership roles Yes, there needs to be more, but at the same time, we can't just expect it to happen when for the last 30 years, that wasn't really the norm. You know, it's my generation and a little bit of the generation before, um, probably more like the 80s and 90s, if you can correct me if I'm wrong there, that really saw women stepping out of the house, being going into work. And there's many reasons for it. Uh, Obviously, one, the cost of living is so high now. You can't have just one provider unless you're making six figures in most cities, which is where a lot of people live now. but at the same time, you know, I, I, you can't force women in leadership. There has to be, at least from women I've talked to, there has to be a sense of agency. There has to be a sense of, I earned it. I'm not just meeting a quota. Um, and I think you're seeing that with more women entrepreneurs. You're seeing that with them getting more seat at the table. But there's still all these conversations that are kind of happening around. It's still two to one in the boardroom or um, sorry, like two to 10 in the boardroom. So two women, 10 men. And for me, it's like, I understand that that is a pain point, but at the same time, I think we will see it evolve more to an equal standpoint in the next few years, especially seeing as men are 
going to university less. Uh, according to statistics, women are going way more. So what are your thoughts on just, I know that was a lot there. What are your thoughts on just some of the common changes that you've been seeing in your research? I'm sure you've been researching it a lot too and everything that you've done on feminism and women in the household, but I'm really interested on on a lot of what I just alluded to there and and, and hearing your thoughts on it. All right, let's dig in. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you totally tapped into my first chapter of this book because Perfect. I start out, yeah, I start out talking about the 1950s family and how it's non-existent anymore because you have no more one-income households. It's nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. We have to have two-income households now. My father said that to me in the 70s. So even after 20 years, we were starting at that point to step away from that one income, 50s ideal American household. Now, with that said, I agree with what you were saying. It was in the 80s or 90s where you started seeing more women rising to the top in corporate America. Um, by the mid-90s, I was in Atlanta working for a big wig accounting firm, Arthur Anderson. And they had one head partner that was a woman, and that was a really big deal. And then they had several junior partners that was a woman. And boy, I was living the high life of modern times. Mm. You know, and I remember that. I remember that era. It was a big deal. It was exciting. It was new. Um, now we have, I just read an article a couple of days ago, where Fortune 500 companies have 7.8% women as CEOs. Tragically, they have 0.8% black men as CEOs. Mm. So we are still living in a white man's world. There is mm -hmm. no denying that. It, even though I'm a feminist, it's very sad to me. I hate to see that black men aren't receiving their due. Mm -hmm. You may have caught the news feed about the Wells Fargo CEO saying a few months ago that there just wasn't enough quality black employees to pull from the pool. I saw know. that. Yep. And then came back and apologized. And it's like, yeah, you're apologizing because you don't want to lose your, your black customers. Mm -hmm. You don't want to pull their money from your bank. But guess what? I'm going to anyway, mm. <laughs> you know, yep. um, it just, we have a long way to go. It is an uphill battle, but it's worth it. And again, it saddens me, but, I find it interesting that women right now, for some reason, seem to be having more, making more headway. But I have to clarify, it's predominantly white women that are doing that. And so mm -hmm. when you hear black women saying, you know, the first and second feminist movements were white. They left us behind. That's not a lie. It's true. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the reason I think while racism still has a stronghold in this country, so that's something to consider probably for another episode. But great evidence mm -hmm. that I've found in our progress is one of the huge ones is sports. The women's soccer team that had won like two or three years in a row in Brazil, they finally got equal pay with the guys. And the mm -hmm. male team was like, they've earned it. Give it to them. And so we're mm -hmm. starting to see it happen. Um I have an art a chapter on female musicians and how they speak out through their music. And then we have one on actresses as activists and how they're using their platform to speak out about equality and feminism. So it's there. I don't want to give too mm -hmm. much away of the book, but, um, <laughs> you know, we're coming along. And I think younger women because they are making 80 cents on the dollar for the most part, can now say, if I can get my own web one bedroom apartment and keep, and keep it clean, not have to clean up after you <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. and get to go out with my girlfriends as late as I want and, you know, wear whatever I want and play sports if I want, then why would I be in a relationship where I don't feel like I'm being all of me? And I think that's what mm -hmm. it comes down to now. And that's what I'm grateful for in our Z generation, our millennials. They really embrace authenticity. Those two generations are very much about, it's okay for me to say, what about me? 
Mm-hmm. This is who I am. This is what I need. This is what I want. Let me tell you something, Luke. That's what's going to make us a healthy society. Mm-hmm. Everybody and, needs to be on that page. Yeah. And and what would you say to men who are intimidated by that? Because that's what seems to be a, a big problem is that men are, one, intimidated by women who know what they want and are you know self-motivated or self-driven and are, are not reliant really on men in a lot of ways. But two... I also think like this is the positive that I see for it is that I don't have to provide as much, which is a great thing for me. Like I, to me, that's that's a that's a huge relief is that my woman would be independent. So what would you kind of say to men who are intimidated by independent women who are financially secure and, and can do a lot of it on their own? It's the exact same thing I say to people when I want them to unravel their bias and prejudice regarding racism the LGBT community or what have you, you have to dissect your psyche. You have to take the time to ask yourself, why do I feel the way I do? Is it because I came from a household where that was the case, where my father made more money than my mother and she always had to have dinner on the table, even if she worked that day? We all have these reasons in our subconscious mind why we think, Life should look the way it looks. Has a lot to do with media. I have another chapter called Media Madness where I'm talking about different companies that have started edifying women um, in their campaigns. And that it's been very empowering for women. It's teaching them to be independent. And that's huge. I think we need to get men out of the mentality of you have to be a moneymaker You have to drive a Porsche or a Lamborghini. You have to have a hot model on your arm or you're nothing. This is a baby boomer era psyche. This Mm -hmm. whole mentality of having all these things to prove that you're worthy. Worthy of what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The only thing that matters, man, is that you're happy. So Mm. when you're looking at what you want in a relationship, first you need to get real about you what your expectations and needs are. Do you need more affection? Do you need less affection? Do you need a relationship with someone who's going to be honest with you and help you grow as a human being? Or who's going to lie to you and tell you that you're Superman every day and that you never do any wrong? It Mm -hmm. really is about the man deciding who and what he wants to be and what partner he wants to have to help him get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why one thing that I always think is interesting is like this idea around almost shaming women now who do want to be stay at home moms and just want to have kids. And because that's not counterculture in the current sense of what we are now. And meanwhile, back then it was weird to see a woman who didn't want to get married, have kids, and she just wanted to work and have a career. And we've kind of seen that we're seeing kind of an overcorrection there. Um, And it's the same thing that I think when, you know, men are really attracted to women who aren't independent. Like to me, that's not a big issue. Um, But I, I see a lot of men who might be on the more men's rights activist kind of angle be like, why would you want a woman who is independent and self-driven? And I'm like, she's fighting for exactly the same thing that you are as a men's rights activist for most part is that you can be available. You don't have to work as much. You don't have to provide as much. Like I've read some books and some uh, that are great about this whole topic about men's rights and, and how they really are in a line with feminism, except totally different ways of seeing the same problem, like completely opposite. It's almost comical how men's rights activists think um, in, in a lot of ways. I won't get too deep into it now, but like, what are your thoughts on, on almost kind of the seeming shaming that, that a lot of women are seeing if they want to be more traditional or want to be more like the eighties mom and, and woman? Like, do you think it's okay? Like to me, that's all about the freedom of choice and everything that feminists are fighting for too. You're dead on Luke. I, I love this question so much. Um, I have a chapter on motherhood, and the first sentence is, not everyone's meant to be a mother. Mm. And then I go into, but if that is who you are at the core, if you grew up knowing that you wanted to be a mother of two or five and nothing fills your heart with more joy, 
I want you to have as many kids as you want to have because you're going to be a mother that's putting good citizens into society, right? Mm-hmm. Those are not going to be neglected children that aren't being taken care of, that aren't taught manners or to look out for their neighbor. Mm-hmm. I think I have a friend that told this several years ago who was going through a divorce. I said, there's nothing in the world more important that any of us will ever do than to be a good parent. It's a really big deal. And a lot of people mm-hmm. do it because they think it's what comes next in life without really taking on that armor of rearing responsible, loving members of society. That's huge. And I want mm-hmm. people doing it who have chosen it, who are going to be good at it and who are going to take it seriously. So it reminds me of a movie many years ago, Mona Lisa smiles with Julia Roberts. Did you ever see that? She was a feminist who went and taught at one of the all girls colleges in the fifties. And she was trying to get these girls to understand where their power lay and challenge them to go into the workforce and be lawyers and all this kind of stuff. And one of the girls chose motherhood. She was like, I chose this because it's what I want, because it's the most important Mm. thing to me. And you're guilting me about it. And culturally, we still have a lot of people doing that. I mean, I certainly experienced that in my lifetime. And Mm. I commend those mothers who are full-time mothers and, you know, getting the job done and doing it right, because I don't have that in me. And I completely empathize with the woman who's like, I'm an artist or I want to run a CEO company that's going to save children in a third world country, you know, a nonprofit organization. Like whatever your passion is, you came into this world with a special set of gifts. Mm -hmm. They're just you. Nobody has that special set of gifts or essence but you. So with that all said, figure out what it is as soon as you can and go for it. I read a a study that I've also referenced in the motherhood chapter. This woman who interviews so many women from the 60s, 70s, and 80s who are like, please don't tell my children I wish I hadn't had kids. Mm. Maybe they weren't ready. Maybe they married the wrong person. Maybe they just weren't meant to be mothers. There's more reasons to not be a mother than there is to be a mother. So if you're going to do it, be all in. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't take that away from our mothers because we need them. But we also have to honor the fact that we don't live in a one income culture anymore. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a woman who holds down a 40 hour job and so does her husband, she needs help at home, period. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because the book I was talking to you about um, was discussing how I think women undersell their uh, the the amount of work they do at home. They they say it's less than what it actually is, and men over over boost by like five times or something like that. <laughs> if they did three hours, they say they did fifteen or some like crazy number about how men are like men are increasing their workload in the home, but they are not increasing it as much as they think they are or say they are. And I I actually agree with her in the book uh, is. To me, it's you should be doing things according to your strength. So if a woman is really good cook, she should be cooking. And if a man is really good at doing um, home renovations or anything like that, they, that's what he should do. For me, like I don't like doing gardening and stuff, but I I don't mind cooking. So I would probably take on more of that if I could. And it's it's about dispelling these ideas of gender stereotypes and doing it more to the strengths that you have in the home. So whether that's, you know, if a dad really likes to babysit and something like that or spend time with the kids, he should be doing that. And the woman can be outgoing with her friends. It doesn't always have to rely on the woman. So to me, she takes a really good angle of of work and roles in the home in the sense of playing to your strengths, not the, to the gender stereotypes that you have, which is, I think is really like a logical idea, but for some reason it's still a conversation. Right. And I just want to preface, I did not read your book. So the fact that I've listed three chapters here is, is all by coincidence, not so much uh, that I've read the book and I'm, I'm setting up Regina here for, for some, for some alley-oops. Sexual Intellectual Female has not been published yet. It hasn't even been edited yet. It's not finished. There's no way Luke could have read any of it. 
no, no way. And you didn't tell me any of these things at all. These are just coming up in conversation. So you set uh, me up beautifully. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, that's what I try to do, right? Uh, but I did want to go to one thing that you mentioned there, in the sense of this woman, and I think we're referencing the movie. This woman just wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. For for me. Do, this is something that I think about quite a bit is do you think we're overcorrecting in, in areas of like women in STEM and women in math and women on all these like more masculine jobs? And do you think we're, we're like, I don't want to say indoctrinating because I think you're just showing options to kids when they're younger about things that might work for them. But sometimes I feel like we're almost over pressuring that demographic into doing something and then they end up disliking it. Cause I don't know, but like I spend a lot of time on social media too. I see a lot of young women who are like, I I took STEM classes, but then I quit because I really liked graphic design instead. And I know other women who are like, I took communication studies and then I realized I taught myself code on the side and now I really love software engineering. Like kind of, can you give me some ideas about that? Do you think there's a little bit of overcorrection putting women in STEM and and a process on that? I don't. And let me tell Mm. you why because we've been overshadowed for so long in those regards that we lost out on some brilliant minds. Did you see the movie hidden figures a few years ago with a black woman who came out of Alabama who helped with the space shuttle? I did. Yeah. All right. That's, that's a phenomenal example of how we, especially in American culture, shoot ourselves in the foot when we don't look past gender and ethnicity to someone's true, authentic self and talents. So what feels like overcorrecting is really all of us doing what we should be doing in life. We should all have the opportunity to explore anything we want to try. And then mm-hmm. get our higher education, even if it's being a craftsman and building, that's still a higher education, it's still a specialty. You want to know by the time you get to college, what's going to be best suited for you in a career. And that means when you're young, not being overlooked in math class. It means taking a computer class. And if you have a natural gift, if your brain is just wired to be creating code, man, figure that out in high school. So you don't waste an extra two years in college and an extra 50 grand finding your true purpose. I, I, I want to say right here is that I actually did my first year in computer science and then switched to a liberal arts degree. So I wasted a year of my life, but in Canada, fortunately enough, it's not $50,000 per year. I would think it was only 16,000. Um, but that was exactly me. And now I'm happy with my degree, liberal arts degree. Some people would say it's a, it's a, it's mostly women that were in my program for sure. It's like 70, 30, I think. And, uh, Hey, look at me now. So running run a podcast, <laughs> don't, don't ever let someone say a liberal arts degree means nothing. Cause That's right. part of it got me here. And me yeah. too. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just think the whole conversation around it is really interesting. And, and sometimes I do think that, you know, and this isn't even me as a man. It's just, are we forcing people to do things that they don't want to do in the sense of, you know, and I think women should be provided these opportunities for sure, or at least let them know that they are are available to them. But not every woman has to be an engineer to be seen as successful. And not every woman has to be a nurse to, or, you know, it's not, it's not bad to be a woman who wants to go into nursing. Like, I, I don't know. Sometimes the language in culture just seems to much like in the, in the way of being a traditional woman, it seems to say, if you want to be these things, you know, like wake up, that's not what we are anymore. We want to be leaders in a boardroom. We want to be executives. And if you're a nurse, then that's a bad thing. And maybe that's just like, you know, echo chambers on social media and whatnot, which it probably is. But, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like we're overcorrecting too much, if that makes any sense. It does. Now I want you to reverse that thought process and think about Uh how we've done the same thing to men forever. You're a man. You're supposed to be strong. Your job is supposed to be laborious or you're supposed to be making a lot of money. You're not supposed to be at home engaging with people on intellectual and emotional levels on a podcast. 
you should be outdoors cutting the grass because you're the man. All of mm -hmm. it, it goes on and on and on forever, and it goes both ways. And it isn't fair to any of us because guess what, Luke? I love to garden. Mm -hmm. I love it. I can't do it in the Vegas heat, but it's the most yeah. therapeutic thing in the world. And if I was looking for a life partner, you would be on the list. Because <laughs> something great, and I would be outside with my flowers and my lavender. Yep. <laughs> and I would bring all that in the house, and it would, you know, smell great in the bathroom when you were taking a bubble bath. You know, um, we all have our own niches, mm -hmm. our own gifts. And we need to get to a point of society where we're not expecting or forcing, you use that word, we're not forcing expectations on others. And that goes both ways. It isn't fair for men not to be able to be exactly who they are. It isn't fair for women not to be exactly who they are. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's funny that you pointed that out because I've never really struggled with that because I, I think the, the the home dynamic that I've always had is very interesting. My dad was the sole moneymaker for a while, but then he they had four kids and my mom, I was homeschooled till grade nine. And then my mom went off to work uh, because they needed the money nowadays to, to be able to support the family. Um, but my mom's always had more of that go-getter mentality. And my dad's always been more of the laid back, you know, not a self-driven person, uh, which is which is really interesting. And for me, I've always been like, I didn't even realize that it was not masculine to to get a liberal arts degree. And that's why when I, I've had people on that are work at NGOs and I'm like, how does it feel to be in a feminine field? And they say, what do you mean? Well, I say, aren't most of the people that work at like non, not-for-profit organizations or non-government organizations or whatever they, they are, I'm like, aren't they mostly women? And photographers too. I'm like, isn't photographers mainly a feminine kind of role it's it's mainly women and it's a lot of gay men right like it's not seen as something a, a straight heterosexual man would do and then that's when it kind of clues into them that oh it is kind of out of the norm what they're doing in in the masculine way and to me i never really even occurred to me until i took more liberal arts courses and was like okay this is i guess this is different and i looked around my class and i saw mostly women and uh yeah, I've just never really, really had that problem of going my own way, which is why I find it interesting that men think they have to be something. But I think that's more of a product of their surroundings because someone, sh someone shared something on Instagram the other day saying um, like 91% of war uh, casualties or deaths are men. Um, uh, most of the suicide uh, are men. Most of the workplace uh casualties are men and it's like these are male perpetuated problems they're not female perpetuated problems like it's men expecting other men to be manly uh another thing i read this today was i'm a huge fan of hockey and there was a whole thread of all the players that played through injuries and it was probably 80 percent of the team that played through real serious injuries and now they're out for the next four or five months with these injuries and it's like well that's expected of them because it's masculine they're all they're all on these painkillers and like that is toxic masculinity yep. is that they think that they have to play through these battles. And, and it's, it's true that, and that's the reason why men suffer is mainly because of men. And that's not to victim blame. That's not to blame anyone. That's not being a victim. That's just the fact of the matter. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to those stereotypes that you mentioned. So I want to bounce off of your masculine yeah. or feminine degree in jobs because okay. I totally get where you're coming from. I mean, we can look at a field and say it's more populated by men or women. But we also have to laugh because there isn't a job in the world that is gender specified or we can't. I mean, and there's a lot of people yeah. going to tell you that, you know, gender is an illusion or social construct anyway. So we could go down that super feminist intellectual thing, but I'm not no, going that's to. Okay. I'm just going to use <laughs> a very common sense manner of saying, how in the hell do you assign a job a gender? It's not a gender. Yeah. There's no such thing as a masculine or feminine job. An engineer is not a masculine job. It may mm. be more intellectual, maybe a tad creative, depending on 
what you know role you're in but it's not masculine or feminine and so Mm -hmm. the worst thing we can do again for society at large is to try to assign everything we limit ourselves we limit our growth um we're not being the best that we can be if we're cutting ourselves off short from our talents Mm -hmm. so what are you what are your thoughts on like I feel society labels everything right now and, yeah. and like almost over labels and it's the same, like more, and I guess on a personal level, identity politics and whatnot. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting that we, we, not, we don't want to label jobs, but almost every day we put ourselves in these boxes too, right? Like, oh, I'm a straight white male, so I'm cisgendered and, and whatnot, whatever those terms are nowadays. And I'm like, well, that puts me in a category where, a lot of times people say my opinion on politics doesn't matter because that's all that society is, is that a straight white man. And I get it. I, I back off on, on topics that I have no relation to uh, because I don't experience that. I'm very privileged in my life. I understand white privilege. I understand male privilege, but it's like some people use that as a weapon. They use all these labels that we put on people as weapons against their word or, or what they're allowed to be. So like where's the line when it comes to labeling things and whatnot with, with, uh, with what you're talking about right now? That is a great question. And I'm not easily stumped Luke. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think again, a great takeaway for your listeners in this would be labels limit us. Say that to yourself 10 times a day. If you have to, to stop labeling things, what we're trying to do as a whole in society is get to the point where we look at a person and we meet them on a soul level. It's not about what color your skin is or where you went to college or if you have a degree. It's not about where you live. It's not about any of those things. What's going on in that heart and mind of yours? That's where it's at. That's who you are. Mm -hmm. Boy, that would be a great training session. And that's a whole different podcast altogether to talk about the necessary societal shift of people's mentality regarding labeling everything. In my racism book, I talked about how important language is. And when I was in graduate school, I suddenly had this epiphany regarding the term black and white. I'm from the South. We use the term black and white a lot. Mm -hmm. And it equates to right and wrong. And it infers that white is right and black is wrong. Completely subconscious. But every time you say it, you're reiterating that Mm -hmm. in other people's minds. So we need to be really careful with the things that we say. We need to start opening up our hearts and minds to others according to who they really are. We need to relate to people not because of the color of their skin or because we're both queer or because we're both straight. Mm -hmm. We we need to find out who we are on a different, deeper level. Mm -hmm. Did that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Cause that's how I see people too, is it's in the same sense that, you know, I get one of the things I get really frustrated with is saying that you can't be friends with people that are different than you or, you know, democratic Republican or whatnot. Trump supporters, not Trump supporters. I understand the whole, anger towards Trump because he's a terrible human being. And, and like, personally, I think so. Yes, um, I agree. <laughs> like, and, but I don't understand, I think this idea of not being friends with a supporter or of someone who voted for them or whatnot, it's like they're actively supporting him. That's different than just being like, I voted for him or I voted blue or whatever the colors in America are because I always vote blue. Um, and to me, it's it's like that just adds to the divisiveness that we're currently in, and Correct. you can't you can't ever get someone to change their mind by yelling at them and saying that they suck or they're evil for voting for Trump. Really, you have to win by being the bigger human or better man or woman. Don't genderize it, you know, if, if that's uh if that's what you want. But um, you really have to come at, at it with empathy and see how you can. Again, everyone's a product of their surroundings. So if I was a white man in a um, urban farm community and I'd never – there's no black people in my neighborhood and all I saw was black people on on Fox News breaking laws and whatnot, I've been conditioned to see them as bad people. And 
it's not that I've ever had experience with one. It's not anything like that. It's just you like that's, that's your environment and your environment made you racist. Like that's, that seems to me what it is. And you have to get people, which is why I think metro, uh, metropolitans are so great is that they bring diversity just the way they are. Um, and that's what a lot of young people really like right now is metropolitans. I mess up that word every single time, but, uh, yeah, metropolitan, I, I kind of like Neapolitan. It's a big one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that question and whatnot, really, right now. Uh, but that's kind of I just don't like the amount of divisiveness that we like force onto ourselves. It's almost like we not we're not meeting people with empathy in a lot of ways, and that really frustrates me most of the time. Unless like someone's purely evil and and yeah. vile and and stuff like like Trump. <laughs> I'm vibing with you on this. And so yeah. run with it because I'm on the ground here in the States, right? Yeah. So you, you used a, a phrase and I'm going to tweak it because it's a phrase I've written in a book, in my racism book, and it's something I use often. It's been a great life lesson for me. And it didn't come to me until graduate school in my early 40s. We are all a culmination of our life experiences. Nobody gets around that. Period. And you just said something very close to that. I agree with mm-hmm. it 110%. Um, I think it's very wise. I think it's one of those golden nuggets that everyone really needs to absorb. And it can take years for it to fully get in <laughs> to your mm-hmm. way of I life. say it, but I don't practice it all the time. Yeah. So I'm with you on that. And through all of this, I wrote this book on racism Obviously, it's very important to me. I'm living in Vegas. I moved here from the South thinking it would be more metropolitan. In a lot of ways, it is. But I learned that racism is everywhere. And with that said, I have friends here that I've met that I realized after knowing or after releasing the book are racist. So Mm. how do I deal with that? I have a family who is... Probably I just lost most of my Republicans, but the older generations that have passed away now, my parents have both passed away. One was a Democrat and one was a Republican. So I had a great aunt who kept President Bush, the first one's picture on her fireplace. Mm. The only man hanging in her house. I mean, these, (laughs) these are Christian, Southern, conservative Republican folks. But they were not all racist, but I certainly mm. have some racist in my family. So with all of this said, how do you love them? How do you educate them the best you can? I have a lot of friends who are like, man, you're just not going to change uncle so-and-so. You just need to love him and keep on going. But for me, when I released this book and I started talking about it and doing podcasts and such, it's a part of my life purpose now, Right. So when I start having these really intense conversations, one of my lessons this year in 2020 has been no matter how passionate about a subject you are, you can't get antagonistic. You can't lose your temper, which I did with a friend recently Mm. who who I love like a brother. I mean, I I love the guy so much, you know, I put him on my back and walk him through a desert. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't Mm. help heal the divide. Now, like you said, there's some evil ones out there, and I'm with you. I believe Trump's one of those. I don't want anyone at my dinner table breaking bread with me who is that person. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to break bread with a Nazi. I'm never going to break bread with someone who doesn't care about the neighbor down the street who's black and kids are going hungry. That's not okay Mm -hmm. with me. I don't want you too close because you can turn on me for a dime. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, So it is a bad. I agree. There's a line. Yeah. I said there is a line. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think it's, um, there was something that you said there too, that I thought was really good. Um, Just about, you know, I, I, completely blanking on what it was. So 
I'll, I'll try to remember if we, if we go forward on it, but it was really good. Then you, then I was like, I'm going to, I have to keep listening. Um, so the life of a podcaster, forgetting the question. Yeah, notes, right. I have all the notes from, from previous, but I've not taken notes while you've been talking during this conversation. Probably a big mistake of mine. Um, I have to, cause I'll forget. Yeah. Well, I think it was something about the South and, Oh, me. Okay. Yeah. I remember now. Um, it was about, you know, even everything going on with George Floyd and, and things like that. I had to look internally at myself and say, you know, am I racist? And I I don't really believe that anyone who's white in a lot of ways doesn't have some racism or thoughts in them, right? For me, it's like sometimes I'm still conditioned to think, oh, there's a guy who's uh, a, you know, a young black man who's in a store with me and he's not dressed the way I am. Therefore, he is dangerous. And like, I, I always check myself. I'm never like, I actually believe it, but I, those, those thoughts are still in your head from all the media you consume from. And I have so many African-American friends. Like it's, it's not a thing I think about with them. I know that they're not, you, you can't stereotype them like that. Right. And I always have to, I realize that I have those racial tendencies within myself or ra- racism tendencies within myself to be like, Luke, what the hell are you doing? Like, that's not at all what is going on. Stop being stupid. I've seen more white guys pickpocket and and shoplift things from stores than than black men. But we've see, we see all these less things. Likely on, to get caught. Yes, exactly. It's, it's way less likely to get caught because they're not. No one's watching them. Right. And it's very sad. And I've had to realize that I need to condition that racism, those racist thoughts, out of me. Not to say that I am racist because I don't act on them. I don't like spew hate towards them, right? But it's you're still conditioned in a lot of ways to think certain things, and you need to get that out of your head as quickly as possible. And as you said, you were talking about it earlier. Reflect on who you are, what your values are, and really understand that the problem, a lot of the problem, will start with you, and you need to take that own personal accountability. I'm so in love with everything that you just said and it's so important and I really, I really appreciate you bringing that to the table. I'm bouncing around a workbook. I want to do it for 12 to 18 year olds and for adults. It's Mm. called unpack your racism knapsack. And as I go through, I'm going to ask questions for you to make notes about your reaction, how you would react or you know, what you would do in a certain situation. But the beginning of it lets everybody know we all have hidden biases. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from because media puts it in there. Mm -hmm. I remember in my 20s when the TV show Bad Boys came out and I used to watch it with my Hispanic boyfriend and his brother and they're only arresting black guys. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most popular show for like 20 years. I think it's still running on cable. Wow. What kind of images is that putting in America's subconscious minds about our mm-hmm. black community? It sure ain't positive. We all have to give ourselves permission to work through this. We need to tell ourselves we're works in progress. Slavery has been going on in this country for over 400 years. And yes, I believe slavery still goes on because they're arresting black men and putting them in prison for 20 years for stealing a car battery kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's still going on. Systemic racism is a form of slavery. So, with Have that, you read the book, The New Jim Crow? Is that what, uh, have you read that book or no? Not yet. Right now I'm reading Waking Up White. I just started this one. Okay. I have it, but I haven't started. Oh, you can't see it because of the green screen. But um yeah, the new Jim Crow. I have it on my on my to, to read list, but I think it's all about that. So sorry, keep going. No, no worries. Um, the worst thing we can all do is say, I'm not racist. This is BS. Screw you. One thing I did in my book and the feedback I'm so grateful for from the black community has been like, whoa, Regina, you really like cut yourself open and bled here. I dissected myself from the time I was a kid. Until I was 30 years old and what it took for me to overcome a lot of my own ignorance and bias and prejudice I didn't even realize I had. 
And I did that so other people would pick up the book and understand is it part of our culture. We have to work through it. Not everyone is raised in a household where Jimmy, who lives down the street, who's black, can come over for dinner with no problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just, you know, we're still not going to church together. We're still not mixing together. And I think if people can start opening up their lives to BIPOC people and families, and like you said, when you have friends that you love and you go to each other's house and you celebrate anniversaries and birthdays together and you love each other, that those subconscious things in your mind that do pop in on occasion are much more easily put aside and eventually mm-hmm. don't happen. You remember the woman we talked about in the beginning, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune? Mm-hmm. She was close friends and um, allies with Eleanor Roosevelt. They did a lot of civil rights work together. A book I'm going to write later is called Two First Ladies, and it talks about their relationship. Mm. There's a quote, a famous quote from Eleanor that said, until I could kiss my friend Mary on the cheek without a second thought, I knew I had not yet overcome my racism. Mm. The first time Mary ever went to the White House to see Eleanor, she was walking across the front lawn, and a gardener turns to her and says, Auntie, you need to go around to the back door, thinking she was probably a maid or something. And Mm -hmm. she says, which one of my sister's children are you? And it was a big deal for her to be there. Her and Eleanor's relationship was publicized. Eleanor was harassed. She had to start carrying a forty-five with her um, for fear that she would be shot and killed. During the Depression, FDR would send Eleanor out throughout the country to find out what was really happening on the ground so they could mm. pass appropriate legislation and try to get people the help they needed. So I think we all have a little something. And I think we have a moral responsibility to identify it and work through it. And the best way we can do that is to get some BIPOC folks in our life and listen to their voices. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But don't put the pressure on them to make you change. That all has to be internal, right? Correct. Like you have to realize your own flaws, but you need to surround yourself with people who help you see the world through their eyes. Um, that to me is really important. And it's the same thing with, with men. And, you know, as much as I try to dismantle toxic masculinity and talk about it, I know I have toxic traits for sure. Like a hundred percent, I have toxic traits. And I know that that was an episode that stuck out to you of one of my past guests, uh, with Michael Berjani. Um, he, you, you and I talked about the fact that he said he needed to admit that he was toxic and, and break that down and go to therapy for it. Um, which I thought was awesome that you listened and and that stood out to you. But another thing I wanted to talk to you about kind of maybe to, to wrap up this full conversation is, you know, I'm really, I'm writing an article right now about um, why men should listen to women about toxic masculinity. And from what I see is that a lot of men are like, we don't want women talking about toxic masculinity. They don't know us. They have no right to say what it is and what it isn't. I've realized over the last year and more that I should be listening to more women about what toxic masculinity is because they're the ones that are mostly affected. Like men are affected by it largely, but so are women, domestic violence, things like that. But I think about times where my friends say that they have to walk home in the dark with a phone in their hand to make sure that they can call someone quickly or they never get in the front seat of an Uber or they always have a key in their hand uh, when they're walking home too. Like These little nuances that they have to protect themselves from are protecting themselves from men typically. Uh, like how do you as a woman, um, you know, without giving your age, talk about uh, how you see toxic masculinity? I'm 198, Luke. Don't I look great? (laughs) You look fantastic for 198. (laughs) Um, I'm going to share a story of my ex-lover that I was with for 12 years. Very successful man, ran hospitals. Um, Type A personality from the get-go. Big, worked out a lot, which is not a thing for me. 
I don't like men too strong that I can't take down if I need to, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember actually telling him at times, you need to slow down on the working out thing. You're starting to look like an incredible Hulk. It's not necessary. And he was 19 years older than me. So he was like, I'm just trying to keep up with you. And I was like, no, don't try it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no need for it. Um, he was also someone who completely identified with the power of his position. What he did for a living was who he was. And towards, mm-hmm. um, I think the nine year mark, he was fired. He lost his job and it really devastated him. And I told him, I said, I had said to you all along that you aren't your job. You're a human being with emotions, with people that you love, with a lot more going on in your world than your fifth floor office <laughs> and your Mercedes mm-hmm. Benz. Like, really? It was very hard for me to understand that he couldn't see himself as a human being. Mm-hmm. Now, again, he was, I'm trying to do the math real quick in my head. He's probably born around 60-ish. And he was raised in that same conservative household where one person works and, you know, he identified with that type of man and the man that had mm-hmm. to have the big salary and make the money. And I think that men don't always, none of us, let me preface it this with, I think we don't always realize why we do what we do. Mm. A lot of our behaviors are a result of childhood trauma or other life experiences. And we go into survival mode. And until you get to the point, most people do it in their forties where they start self-reflecting and realizing who they are. And maybe they've already gone through a divorce or two and they need to change some things. But what I love about millennials and the Z generation is they're trying to tap into who they are already. That's Mm -hmm. how I see it. And I love and appreciate and respect them so much for that. And I want to encourage it immensely. So guys, every woman isn't always right. (laughs) Just like every man isn't always right. One of the things I took away from that 12 year relationship was when he said to me one day, because I was always so high strung. It wasn't enough that, you know, I graduated with a 3.01 something average for undergrad. I wanted to graduate with honors and I always put a lot of stress on myself to be the best at what I did. Mm -hmm. And he was like, man, nobody's perfect. And that resonated so beautifully with me that is probably the best lesson I took from that relationship. It's allowed me to ease into and be more comfortable with all of who I am and that I'm enough. And that my quirks and my essence is different from anyone else and it's special and the right people in my life are going to love me for that. And I think we all need to be that way. We all need to get to the point where we're honest enough with ourselves and we do the work to self-reflect and we just ease into, I'm not a horrible racist person. I'm not, you know, a loser because I don't make half a million dollars a year because I don't own my own home by the time I'm 25. Like all of these expectations that we put our, on ourselves. And remember, we're treated like commodities. All mm-hmm. these messages coming at us from media are just to sell us stuff to make somebody else richer. So mm-hmm. release all of that, man, because it doesn't have anything to do with your happiness. Yeah. If we want to be our best selves, we need to surround ourselves with really good people and then listen. I think that is the perfect way of ending this conversation because you basically just said we're all imperfect and this is the imperfect pod. Um, And that was a, I I know you didn't plan that, but we also didn't plan any of your book references at all either. So um, it always works out in the end, but I, I really love where you ended it there. I think that is a beautiful message to to leave with the listeners of this podcast. Everyone, if men are listening to this right now, you're still here and you think that feminists are crazy and irrational. They're really just trying to 
help everyone. They're trying to help you. They're trying to help us see the bigger picture. There's a lot of intersectionality to all of this. Um, and Regina, I really want to thank you for, for being here. Um, when your book does come out, I'll be sure to, to feature it or promote it somewhere on my LinkedIn and whatnot to make sure that everyone can read more about the chapters on motherhood, Twitter, social media, and, and that Gen Z generation. But um, why don't you leave us off with a minute or two about promoting yourself, what you do, where people can find you, and more of the work that you're doing. Thank you. Um, I'm launching my website, personalempowermentpublishing.com, tomorrow. So you'll be able to buy my books from there. Um, I'm actually going to do t-shirts and mugs for the SIF logo, which will be fun too. Perfect. And the racism book is already on there. And I have a blog on there. So I talk about all kinds of cool things from racism to feminism to just things that are happening culturally. Mm -hmm. And the racism book is also on Amazon. It's under Regina G. Hansen. The title is Racism, The Real Reason I Left the South. It's a memoir. I'm also on LinkedIn and Instagram. I have a personal account as well as a personal empowerment publishing account and the same on Twitter. So you can look me up anywhere and we'll Perfect. connect. Perfect. And by everyone, by the way, uh, tomorrow will be not. So tomorrow, by the time tomorrow comes, when this is released, will be the, the website will be published. So I'll make sure to include it in the link to the description of this podcast as well, um, because I think this episode will be coming out in a few weeks time. So that way, the website and everything will be up. I'll link to all your socials and whatnot. And uh, maybe I'll buy myself a mug and, and use it to instead of this empty Jason or Mason jar um, for, for future uh, episodes. But Regina, thank you so much for joining me today. I love the value provided and uh, yeah, thanks again. It was a true pleasure. Thanks for having me, Luke. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Imperfect Pod. Again, I really hope this message goes out there to a lot of young men that feminists are not the enemy. And a lot of the times they are actually arguing for your progress, for your own ability to stop being the sole breadwinner, to be able to go out there and be emotional. They really are on your side and I don't understand this whole narrative that they aren't. Um, Lots of the literature, lots of the academic research shows that they are actually very aligned with what men are asking for in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, if, I hope this conversation kind of just sparks that something in you that you can see that. Uh, again, you can connect with Regina. Everything that uh, she has will be linked in the description down below. Uh, as always, you can connect with me on my email, luke at theimperfectpod.com on Instagram at the imperfect pod always wanting to hear from my listeners about ideas discussion points and everything else uh, so yeah that's it for this week's episode and I look forward to next week's cheers <laughs>